Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a Black Arts and Cultural Program of the African Sisters Media Network. And we are rebroadcasting our Martin Luther King Jr. special broadcast on his birthday this year, January 15th, 2020. And a couple of guests uh, that we have on the show, um, uh, the events have passed, but a couple of others, they have not happened yet. Uh, that's Reverend David uh, Buford and uh, his retirement party coming up in art exhibit, and uh, and Zach Norris, uh, whose book drops next week, uh, February 4th. Don't want you to miss that. And, and Zach Norris, who is executive director of the Ella Baker Center, has a couple of other events coming up, and I just wanted to uh, give you the details on that um, so that uh, just in case you want to catch him um but definitely you don't want to miss um his uh uh his his book uh we keep um we keep uh, we keep us safe and um uh let's see um <laughs> let's see where are we uh I was looking for something. I was. He, I know he's going to be at the Commonwealth Club, um, and um, let's see where is it. Uh, did I miss it already? <laughs> no, here it is. Um, hmm. Well, darn. Oh, here it is. Um, it's uh, yeah. It's uh, at the Commonwealth Club. And he's going to be in conversation with Fred Blackwell, the CEO of the San Francisco Foundation. And it's 6.30. The doors are at 5. The 5.30 is the check-in. Uh, the program starts at 6.30. It's only uh, an hour. And it's at the Commonwealth Club, which is located at 110 The Embarcadero, uh, Top Family Auditorium in San Francisco. And you can get off at the uh, Montgomery, not Montgomery, but the um, Embarcadero Bar and walk over. And for information, you can just go online to commonwealthclub.org, and uh, and Zach is going to be signing his books after this conversation. So that's going to be really cool. One ten, the Embarcadero, and again, that is on um, February twelfth at six thirty. It's when the program starts, and it's only an hour. And but next week is going to be really cool because next week is the official kickoff um and uh that's going to be on the 4th because you know the book is not out yet so that's going to be really 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 fun and uh so uh, the book launch is at Restore Oakland and where is Restore Oakland located uh let's see <clears throat> looking for the location um okay so um the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights is at 1419 34th Avenue, Suite 202. And the phone number there is 510-428-3939. So anyway, just wanted to give you a heads up that, that those two things are coming up. And uh, and they're both in the same location where um, Reverend um, Bluford is having his uh, going away party, retirement party, I should say, and art exhibit is the same location that the kickoff is happening. So let me play this interview now, uh, the the show I should say now, and uh, yeah, look forward to uh, joining you 
for another edition of Wanda's Picks on Friday. This coming Friday, the last day of January. Wow, this month really flew through, flew by, didn't it? My goodness, um, we do not want 2020 to fly by like that. Oh, I know another thing I wanted to announce, that tonight uh, Ranky Tanky is uh, back at the Freight and Salvage in Berkeley. <clears throat> the show is at 8 o'clock. They are fabulous. They're bringing the Gullah Geechee culture from the Carolinas. And... Um, and then also on Saturday is the 30th annual African American celebration through poetry at the West Oakland Library, and that's a free event. One to four p.m. 1801 Adeline. Uh, the phone number there is 510-238-7352, and it's free. You know, bring your poetry if you haven't had an opportunity to get it on the. Uh, um, Featured program, we always have an open mic, so it should be really fun. So anyway, that's uh, that's a little brief uh, (laughs) heads up on what's coming up. Good morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, a black arts and cultural program of the African Sisters Media Network. We are really, really excited to... um, be able to broadcast on the birthday of the man of peace and action, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And we have in the studio, I think we could call we could call you an expert, couldn't we? Um, <laughs> uh, you can Pastor, call me uh, Reverend. You can call me many things that many people have, including late for dinner. But Reverend Buford's okay. Daniel's all right. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, thank you so much for joining us um, uh, for our part two of a conversation that, you know, we might have a part three and a part four. You never know. There's so much going on that. Hey, time um, is filled with swift transition. Somebody shot through my window last week. We'll talk about that because, you know, I, I want to speak quick. I want to speak quickly today. So you go ahead what you got to do. And I'll, I'll, I'll get into that <laughs> later. <laughs> Well, you know, you sent me a little little book about yourself. I'm like, oh my goodness! I was just like, this is a really extensive. You you mentioned well when you get to be 66, you know, you have a lot. You you know, if you've been working and doing things, but um, you 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 said uh in sort of um, uh just a preamble uh to to the uh to the the information about yourself that uh, you have a deep history with Dr. King. And you went into the mm-hmm. ministry six years after he was assassinated. And you also write that you patterned your life as a minister and a prophet after both he and Malcolm X, uh, that That's they correct. were both your main role models for being a prophetic justice minister before you met Dr. J. Alfred Smith Sr., who pastored Allen Temple Baptist Church at the time that um, that you became uh, active in that particular ministry. And mm-hmm. uh, you said you identified publicly and socially as and culturally as an African American. Um and you That's right. Straight that straight up brother. When the cops stop me they know exactly who they stopping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um yeah, you mentioned a lot of um indigenous nations that you know, course through your through your veins and, and you mentioned how how all of this has influenced both your art and your work for social justice. And yes. um yeah, and and you uh say that uh, from your family historian and genealogist, uh, that you um, uh, 
are you saying that you have ants that Marie uh, Laveau, the renowned uh, queen of the Voodoo religion in New Orleans, uh, and part of the right. Underground uh, Railroad, is is your ancestor? Uh, yeah, uh, actually, um, she's a relative as an ancestor. Her um, her father, Charles Laveau, is uh, is actually uh, my ancestor because Charles Laveau was the uh, the grandfather of my great grandmother Anna Georgia Brown. So uh mm. so you know he um he did a lot of things in in New Orleans. Uh he was a um he was a mulatto French creole. So he was uh, he was a wealthy man, light-skinned dude, you know, and uh white mm-hmm. dude but black during those times mm-hmm. and French. So that meant that he had money and he had social station and class. But also it it also means that uh if he passed on the spiritual practices of his mother um, that who probably was uh, involved in some of the stuff around the, the Haitian Red Revolution. You know, this was all connected here. That, um, you know, they brought those practices to New Orleans and then those practices eventually went other places because Charles Laveau was quite prolific as a father. So Marie Laveau and other people were, you know, some of his children. But he had some children in uh, New Orleans and then others in Kentucky. And the ones that he had in Kentucky were one of those was my uh, my my uh, great-grandmother, Anna Georgia Brown, who if, if people uh, look at Marie Laveau and they were to see a picture of me with my uh, – my great grandmother said, "Wow, <laughs> you know, all she'd have to do is dress like that, and you know, put those kind of period clothes, and she could be her." But at any rate, uh, that's that's part of the ancestry. But I'm I'm proud of all parts of my ancestry uh, as a person of African descent, uh, as well as a person of Native American descent. Uh, when I was down in um, in the Caribbean area, uh, the uh, people of Trinidad they said, "You are red, nigger." I said, no, I'm just me, but you know, I just happen to be red because uh, uh, my people are the Wyandotte people, uh, Woodlands uh, people in northern Ohio. Uh, they're the Lummi people who are a, uh, a Woodlands people uh, on the uh, northeast coast, uh, the Pacific uh, coast up in uh, Canada. And, and they are people of the um, wood carving traditions that carve um, totem poles and other things, their whole uh, culture is around uh, the carving of wood. And, and as I said, the Wyandotte people, they're woodlands people, and the Cherokee, which many black people are, uh, more than know that they are really, um, uh, that is there. So as a wood carver and all these other, all this stuff comes together in my wood carving, you know, because I feel like mm-hmm. somehow in, in my time of the distillation of those ancestral voices, come together in the way that I'm able to uh, um, speak uh, before the United Nations um, on, on behalf of the Hurricane Katrina uh, people. Uh, I, I was in South Africa when um, they, um, they were having the funeral services for um, Walter Sazulu, the uh, compatriot of uh, Nelson Mandela who created the ANC and led the liberation struggle there. I just happened to be in Soweto, and Cliptown, South Africa, during that time, and Walter Walter Sazuli died, and I was supposed to be speaking anyway, but now every public event was devoted to his funeral. So all of a sudden, I was the representative of the African-American community from the United States of America who had come specially to Cliptown at Soweto 
to give my condolences <laughs> and my uh, appreciation about the work of Walter Suzulu. So you know, it's like uh, Eddie Murphy said in the um, in the movie. Uh, uh, coming home or uh, trading places or whatever. This kind of stuff happens to be all the time. I mean, I could I could be doing that and then standing in a food line, you know, waiting with a bunch of Chinese people for food, you know, the next day. So I I have that. <laughs> I have uh, I have a topsy turvy life as a prophet of God, as a servant of God, because where he where he calls, I got to go. And you know, I've seen the whole world, but not as a tourist. I've seen it from the perspective of the suffering of the people that invited me to be there. So so one time I was on uh, the radio at KPFA in 1987 for Black History Month, and I just happened to be talking about apartheid in South Africa because that was a big issue. But at the same time, uh, Japan was changing their re- alien registration law, which was alienating literally people who had been born there. So you could not be a Japanese person there by birth as you can in the United States. Uh, uh, so um, people who are Korean have been there for years and years. Uh, they couldn't be Japanese and thus were disfranchised. So they created a passbook system, kind of like the South African thing. I mentioned that, and three months later I was in Japan talking to people from their government about it. So, I mean, you know, I, uh, it's been an interesting life just talking about the struggles of people, and then those people hear that and say, hey, that guy should come talk for us. And so, um, you know, people know that I'm of Native American ancestry. That's my background. I'm not ashamed of that. I've done a lot of stuff with the American Indian movement. Uh, I've got a patch on my on my buckskin that has bullet holes through it um, that was given to me by uh, Dennis Banks when we were doing the, the Long March on the commemoration of the Trail of Tears outside of Georgia. So, you know, I'm a historical artifact walking, but I ain't dead yet, and I ain't gone yet. And, you know, and since this idiot shot through my uh, window next week, I'm not going to go quietly into the night, you know. So when I do my retirement party, uh, my art is not only going to be speaking, and, of course, my well-wishers will be speaking, but, um, you know, something that people don't know about me in addition to being an artist is is that I actually have a a deep uh, performance uh, stage performance background. I've performed on stage uh, in Greenwich Village with Archie Shep at the uh, Sweet Basil's mm-hmm. nightclub. I did a lot of really? stuff. And, and, and yeah, yeah. And the way that he, the way that he found out about me is that Evelyn Blakey, the daughter of uh, Art Blakey, heard me uh, doing poetry in uh, in Harlem at at some community venue, and some of the poetry that I was doing was Archie Shep's poetry. And so she wanted to know if I knew him because she, she <laughs> that's our Blakey's daughter, so she knew all people like that. So I said, no, no, <laughs> but I know it's poetry because I uh, I used to do that poetry, his poetry at Kwanzaa's at the University of Cincinnati, you, you know, when we would have our Kwanzaa observances there. So uh, since I was the organizer of Kwanzaa, and sometimes people wouldn't show up or whatever, so you've got to have something in your repertoire in, ca- in case your main speaker doesn't show up or singer or whatever so I've done everything but tap dance <laughs> you know when somebody didn't show up so if I had to say I'd say or do poetry because people were expecting something so uh, so then I do poetry and I did Archie Shep's poetry enough to be able to memorize it and so I would do it when I'm speaking Waveland Mississippi or um, or Harlem and so at that point mm-hmm. Evelyn Blakey heard me and um, then I got um 
And I was back in New York on a, doing an Undoing Racism workshop with uh, Ron Chisholm and Michael Washington. And um, we were just kicking it. And, um, and Evelyn Blakey said, you know, Archie Shepard is playing over at Sweet Basil's in Greenwich Village. Um, you should go meet him tonight. I'll introduce you. So she did that, and um, you know, and just before they were going to uh, go up for the set, and they were, you know, they hadn't, they just coming in, you know, from the street, and you know, and hanging up their coats, and so she introduced us, and uh, she said, Archie, uh, he he does uh, he does your poetry, and she's really, she was, I don't know if she was even five foot tall, she's really tiny, she had a great voice, uh, <clears throat> and so um, he said, yeah, I'd like to hear hear you do that sometime, and so he's, you know, taking off his coat and, you know, trying to get ready for his set, and then she steps in between us, and, and she looks up in between both, she said, well, now is now, and there's no time like now, he's here now, you're here now, so why don't you hear him now? <laughs> I'm like, okay, <laughs> so, uh, so he says, well, so what do you do, so what do you know, and so I told him uh, which of his stuff that I, I knew, and then I did, and he said, you know that? The wedding, and so I, I ripped mm-hmm. off a couple of lines, and he said, "Yeah, he knows it." So I went up and did it, and it was amazing. I mean, on the bandstand was Horace Parlin, um, Rashid, um, Ali, um, mm-hmm. uh, Shahid Nabib, uh, and a lot of people out in the audience. You know, people came up to me afterward, and I, I was asked to come back a, a second night. So I actually did it two nights straight with them because mm-hmm. they, they liked what mm-hmm. I did the first night. It kind of kind of nailed it there the first night. I'm glad I did. <laughs> because I was nervous, you know, because he, he, when he went into the, what I was going to do on the poem, it wasn't nothing like what I had heard on the radio. I'm like, oh, no, I hope you don't expect me to do something else. <laughs> so that's all I knew, and so that's what I did. So I stuck to what I knew, and that, that helped at the time. So, yeah, I've done a lot of stuff like that, but as um, I would say to anybody that's listening that um, that is um, alive and able to do something, it ain't over till it's over, and you always have to have the capacity to learn and grow and do things and put yourself in a position where um, you, you'll, you'll stretch yourself. And when you do that uh, in the service of God and, uh, and the people of God, your talents are rewarded, the people that you're serving are rewarded, and the world is a better place. Hmm. Right. Yeah. So, so tell our audience um, about your um, your art exhibit uh, that's going to be at the uh, Ella Baker Center um, for the month of February, and it's going to be um, in the in the restaurant or cafe there. And then you're going to have a um, a retirement art party. So, why don't you give um, folks the details on that so they can make sure that they get over to the uh, to the venue. Um, you know, to be able to catch you live, and maybe you might do some poetry for us. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm definitely going to do some uh, that that night. Um, and I'll let. Uh, I'm going to put myself on the bill. I'm not going to go quietly. <laughs> so, um, so, so, so here's 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 what's going on. Um, uh, Zach and Maricela at the Ella Baker Center and Rock. Uh, we have been uh, working together with with Ron Glass, who is a, a professor of philosophy and education, all kinds of other deep stuff down there at UC Santa Cruz, and also a longtime friend. And um, Dr. Jaffer Smith Sr. is a is a inviting host. Fanya Davis is a is an inviting host. 
Merle Lustig Glass is, is an inviting host, and uh, Owele uh, Makiba are oh, inviting hosts yeah. um, mm-hmm. to uh, to this event. These are all personal friends that I've known um, over the, over the years, and so um, these um, these people have graciously uh, conspired to. Um, Help me with um, celebrating my uh, my retirement and, and going away, and that will be held in the Colors Restaurant, a new restaurant that hasn't really uh, opened yet. Uh, but it's uh, this is going to be one of their inaugural big events, if not their inaugural big event at the restaurant for the Ella Baker Center, which is newly renovated the, their entire space. So everything isn't up and running right now, but um, you know it, it, it will be uh, then. So at any rate, the, um, the the show is going to be on Thursday, February the 13th. The uh, opening exhibit part of it will be available to the public from 5 until 630. At 6.30, we're going to have a program where, um, you know, all, all along there will be uh, the, the, the very skillful playing of a young uh, musical but a keyboard genius that I've discovered named Rashid Moore. And he's going to be uh, providing the, the keyboard sounds. Uh, he's uh, like 19 years old, very gifted um, musician, and um, you know, and I've, uh, been, I've had him uh, perform for me in different churches that I've uh, served at as pastor. And he really uh, knows what he's doing and can play by ear as well as read the music. And and hope great things for him. He reminds me like of a Herbie Hancock or a Stevie Wonder or a Ray Charles, you know, even though when they were young, you know, and hitting those keyboards. Mm-hmm. Right, so this young man is going to be there. His aunt, Awele, is going to be the, the MC. Um, I, uh, I I just sent her a message asking her that. So if she's hearing this over the airwaves, this is going to be a shock to her. But yes, I'm asking you, Awele, <laughs> to be my MC. And. Um, then the other people will be there, and, and the show will be a, a retrospective of my work. The oldest piece in the show is from 1981 called um, This Way Atlanta, a Fertility Signpost. Uh, in your uh, last interview of me, uh, you, you made reference to that that had been um, talked about in the Christianity Today uh, article that came out back in the 1990s about my work. So I've been doing this work for a while. I, you know, I've had great opportunities and privileges because I was serving the people to be in opportunities where, you know, you just a dream opportunity. I mean, Miles Davis, I mean, come on. You know, I um, I grew up listening to this guy's music. I always wanted to go see him. And then in 1991, uh, the, uh, the, the same year that, uh, that my uh, youngest son, uh, Aaron, was, was born, I was a featured artist at the New Orleans uh, Jazz and Heritage Festival at the same time that he, I was a featured visual artist at the same time he was a featured musical artist. So I was on the same bill with Miles Davis in uh, at, at the New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival. I had an exhibit of what I would say my showstopper pieces on the inside um, up in the grandstand where the, the racetrack uh, ex- uh, viewing stuff was and then on the uh, Congo Square uh, area, they they made a special raised platform for me, where I was carving in public. I had you know smaller examples of my work down there, and so uh, I was carving in public. I had all the ones that I didn't have on the shirt. Uh, I was built uh, good enough to get away with that. You know, I was some African clothing, uh, no shirt, and I'm out there in a straw hat, and I'm out there 
the performance venue just as there was musicians on these various sound stages. You go around and Zydeco music, there's jazz, there's um, pop, there's uh, country music, there's, you know, rock and roll, there's all, you know, reggae, all of these different areas where if you walk far enough, you know, you go into these various musical soundscapes and then there's all the, the food there. So and at the time I was working on a project down there that no longer exists, it's a 13-foot project that was in the yard of uh, Buddy Murphy, who was a producer for the Jazz and Heritage Festival. And he lived across from the um, Edgar Degas uh, Museum and Residence. And uh, since people had to walk past um, Buddy's uh, property to get to the Jazz Festival, I was carving this 13-foot um, carving, a statue, and, and it was pretty much finished until the, the termites had the final word, and then and then uh, Hurricane Katrina put a punctuation point on it. So that thing only exists now in memory and in pictures. But uh, I was doing a lot of stuff down in New Orleans, and so as you said, the, the connection between uh, Marie Laveau and I, and I, let me just say this, that I never did go to her grave or, her, or the cemetery where people desecrated her memory and desecrate uh, the African religion of Vodun, which they mispronounces that other crap that, uh, you know, people would, you know, talk about. Because, see, a lot of people don't know that Jesus' mother was accused of that. That's that's one of the reasons why they couldn't stay uh, even in in, um, in Africa, is because everywhere that they were, were, he's the son of God. If there was some evil stuff happening, you know, Jesus very presence would root that out. And and people who were in power were always afraid of that from the moment that he was born and his mother was healing people with his uh with the clothes that uh, he had worn or, or things that or water that he had been washed in and using herbal remedies. Uh and then uh then the uh, the Pharisees of the time they accused Jesus mother and Jesus as uh, commit doing witchcraft and demonology and all that stuff. This is the same stuff that they accuse our people of in terms of when they be praying uh, to, um, to, the, to the African gods to get this white man's foot off of my neck, you know, in African languages and with drum beats and with carvings. And so the reason why I'm a woodcarver as an artist, I draw, I paint, I do a lot of other stuff. And see, you notice that anywhere you go in the world, Wanda, and I know you've been a lot of places where black people live, where we originate, you know that we're all, that every community, there's a thriving community of people who carve, there's families who carve, there's, it's passed on as a tradition, same way as textiles and basketry and metalwork. Where is that now in our families? Where is that in the communities in North America? It's nowhere. It's the same place where our African languages are and our memory of who we are. It's gone because we have historical amnesia, and when they stole something from you, if it's been gone long enough, you don't even miss it anymore. So what I discovered as an artist was is that our voices as wood carvers were stolen because people said, oh, well, you're carving wood. That's voodoo and witchcraft. That's ancestor worship. You're making idol gods and I mean, everybody's got a, a, a photograph of a loved one. They didn't have cameras back then. What did they do? They carved people, you know. So you know, silly European, Western, backwards-thinking ways that black people have adopted. I, you know, I had people, you know, 
supposed to be Christian. They're looking, oh, that's, that's African. Come on, you know, you've got thick lips, kinky hair, wide nose, and you're scared of African art. What's wrong with you? You know, that's what kind of sickness is in our people. And so then what I've learned as an artist and a Christian, as a black Christian, is that part of the ministry I have to do is to repair our sense of ourselves in terms of who we are and connected to our ancestors. Because when you reconnect that, then you can be creative. You know, like I told you before, I had been to college, but I've been to the United Nations speaking. I've performed with Archie Shep. I've, I've been on the same bill with Miles Davis. How that nigga do that without an education? Mm-hmm. The inquiring minds want to know is because the power of the Most High God is blessing my talents, and you don't need to be going to these schools. You need to be connected to your ancestry and the prayers of your ancestors because we're all answering the prayers of some ancestor, all of us. The, the song Lift Every Voice and Sing talks about that. We're at a place that our fathers, forefathers sighed for, and many of us are blowing it because here they used to put our eyes out or destroy people for reading. We got access to all kinds of reading, and no, nobody has cracked a book anymore, they, you know, and, uh, and it's too bothersome for them to look something up or Google it, you know, because they're, uh, they're brain dead for not using their brains. So I'm trying to wake people up at a, excuse me, such a deep level that even after I'm gone, which, you know, you can take that however you want to take it in terms of uh, being gone, I intend to have a, a voice that has the power of my ancestors that speaks because they're speaking to me. And, you know, the, the, the sun, it continues to shine. The, the, the waves continue to beat on the ocean. We all have to be forces of nature like that until the day that we die because that's why where our hearts beat is to be a part of create the creative act that God created in the Garden of Eden. Yeah. Well, we only have five minutes left, and I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about Dr. King and if you want to say anything about um, that bullet coming through your window. Um, you want to sort of, yeah. Yeah, uh, and then, yeah, and then also, something. yeah, and then also, and you know, we could have another conversation because I remember uh, when we had a conversation a few years ago uh, about some of the different ballot initiative, and this is another election year, and there was a debate last night, um, and uh, and you're a really good resource around around those kind of things. So, you know, definitely, even though you're moving back to. Uh, your hometown of Cincinnati, um, you know, you'll you'll still be close because we have technology. And when are you leaving, anyway? <laughs> uh, I'm um, uh, I'm leaving of my own volition, <laughs> of my, my own free will, uh, at the end of March. So I want to get oh, away from these fools before April Fool's Day. <laughs> okay, end of March. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, so um, back to Dr. King, though, uh, first giving honor to God, the beneficent and merciful one, the one God whom praise is due forever. Let us always give thanks for Dr. Martin Luther King, the prophet, the only prophet that has truly been raised up on American soil that has spoken to the soul of the whole world, that, that not only 
as a black man, but as a man and as a human being. God bless him and his ministry, and God bless us as we carry on his legacy. Now, you asked me about Dr. King. I went into the ministry because of that man, and, um, you know, everything I am as a speaker, uh, the resonance of my voice, the cadence that I uh, adopt when, you know, I'm preaching, I can attribute to both he and, and Malcolm X. My, my radio style is not Dr. King's radio style because he had a slow way of talking and a sonorous way of talking. But as you notice, I talk very, very quickly on the radio. I don't talk like this in person because I understand something I've learned from Malcolm X is that you have to squeeze in a lot of information quickly so you can't beat around the bush. Now, where Dr. King is concerned at the at, um, the University of Cincinnati, they used to have um, uh, off time during the Martin Luther King celebration. This was even before it was a federal holiday. And I worked over there as a campus minister in 1982 next to a racist fraternity called the Sigma Alpha Epsilons, who uh, had threw a racist party on Dr. King's birthday, a trash party, which I'm going to go into the filthy things that they uh, did at that party. At any rate, some, some of the people published the flyer that uh, is out about it. it. You know, Clifton Magazine wrote about it, and Cincinnati Magazine wrote about it. People wrote books about it, the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, uh, and they've done something racist every year around Dr. King. So, you know, just watch the holidays here. The Ku Klux Klan and the Sigma Alpha Epsilon fraternity, uh, there are um, they're vestiges of the Civil War. Many people don't understand that the Ku Klux Klan actually is a Greek letter fraternity organization, like we have our alphas and our Qs, they have the, the KKK, Kai Klux, Ku Klux Klan, so to tie them into the clans of the, the Scottish Rites, and, and et cetera. So my, I have a background as an anti-Klan organizer, so I, um, I was in the public, and I was talking about that, and I called for their uh, ouster, and I got a, a death threat from a, uh, from a cop. Uh, allegedly, um, and he told me that um, he wanted me to, to to incite the black students to riot like they did in the 1960s because the cops were going to do something different this time. And this time, they're going to be out there with, with protection, and they would know who to shoot and how to shoot. And while the cops were out there putting out putting down uh, the riot, there would be these other people who would be there to, 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 to watch their backs while they're doing it. And they say, you go ahead, you stir those little, you know, you put the words in there, you stir them up so we can do that. Now, you fast forward to what has happened since the, uh, the, the riots here in the 21st century. That's exactly what happens when the uh, Oath Keepers uh, follow the cops around to all of these um, police-involved murders of black people. You know, they have these Ku Klux Klan militia groups behind them. Dr. King was about that. So I've always been about anything he was about. So I used to be a part of clergy and laity concern. I came here to direct the Ecumenical Peace Institute, the Berkeley uh, Office of Clergy and Lady Concern, because Dr. King started that organization as the clergy and layman concerned against the war in Vietnam. And in my capacity as the creator of the Third World Caucus and its leader, I went all around the country um, doing things. Like, for instance, we created a, a prayer vigil that happened over four years on uh, Navajo Hopi land with their permission. 
and with their their blessing. Alice Walker was involved with this. Stevie Wonder, Simmons, uh, Telegram, uh, the late Dr. Uh, Vincent Harding was involved. We had Buddhist monks up there. And so Alice Walker, a bunch of Belly Rooks, another bunch of us, we stood in the morning from the, from the sunrise until the evening, and we saw every part of the climate from sun to cold to, 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 to everything in a prayer vigil all day with Navajo and Hopi elders praying for that land in our prayer vigil. One year later, Governor Evan Meekin was a former governor because he had outlawed the Dr. King holiday, which is why we had that prayer vigil in the first place. For one year to the day when we came back for the anniversary, he was the former governor. Don't tell me the prayer don't work. So Dr. Right. King, bless him. That's 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 why when I, I did the feasibility study, when I was approached by the uh, East uh, Bay uh, Regional Parks uh, District to do a feasibility study for uh, an urban wetland um, type of concept, and I looked at um, different park sites, then then uh, I chose the Arrowhead Marsh near Marsh near the uh, Oakland Airport as being a fitting place to uh, have a park in the memory of Dr. King. It's a, it's a um, estuary uh, inland waterway uh, that is, uh, pro provides um, food and sustenance to many aquatic uh, birds and uh, sea life. You can go in there. It's a beautiful area to walk around. I'm proud that we have that as an area and it's named after Dr. King because Dr. King was about peace. And so my original uh, concept was a Dr. King peace tree grove. You know, uh, and so that that is there. So a lot of things that I've done over the years have been as a direct impact of uh, the, the, the work and the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, we have to claim him. We have to lift him up. We have to lift him up for, for what he, as Christians, we need to lift him up as a prophet. As humanitarians, we need to lift him up as a, as a great advocate for human rights. Uh, as black people, we need to lift him up as an exemplar of the best of what our people have brought to this country. And, you know, and there, you can go on and on and on to the niches and categories, you know, in terms of what people find themselves there. And those who found themselves dispossessed or locked out with nobody to speak for them. Dr. King is that person. He spoke for them. He spoke for the people who didn't have voices. And that's why I'm glad to have had the ministry that I've had. I ain't rich in that way of money, but I'm rich in the way of legacy and experience. I came here, you know, and served with a man, Dr. J. Alfred Smith Sr., who one of the first books when my father in the ministry gave me when I first started preaching in 1974, and I came out of the woods for my vision quest and said, I want to do this. <clears throat> one of the first books on preaching that I was given was uh, one of the books by Dr. J. Alfred Smith Sr., who I'd never met or heard of, until I saw these books on preaching, the tradition of black preachers and preaching. So I did. I had no idea that uh, in, uh, in the apex of my career that I would be, I would be retiring, and this great man would be inviting people to my retiring party. Who would have thought it? What a journey that I've had. It's been rough. I came up the rough side of the mountain, but I wouldn't trade nothing for my journey. Right. And I'm well, going to be on a show called. on H and I'm going to be on a show on HBO uh, that covers the uh, documentary "We Are the Dream," 
um, which are the kids of Oakland Oratorical Contest. Uh, so I, uh, oh. I would be remiss in, in pointing that. And Willie is very involved with that because she organized it up there. Mm-hmm. So it's okay, going to be so a good time. Y'all come out, and uh, I'm going to do some stuff. Ain't nobody seen before because I ain't done it yet, and I really don't know what I'm going to do, but it's going to be something. <laughs> Right. So when when is the uh, the oratorio? Um, was it the film? Um, on uh, on uh, two eighteen, and on um, on two eleven, there's going to be a sneak peek screening at the Skyline Theater uh, uh, at seven o'clock. So they're going to show it at the school, you know, uh, earlier uh, at seven o'clock on the uh, on the eleventh, and then the actual airing of the show will be on February the eighteenth. Upcoming, okay. and the party is okay. on the 13th. So, um, so <laughs> you know, I'm I'm going out uh, not with the bang that that idiot thought. And by by the way, the person was shooting at Kamala Harris's sign. That's what they were oh. shooting at. They were. I don't take it personal. I ain't that famous. I ain't you know, I ain't tripping like that. But the, the, I almost called him something that begins with M and has F in it. But you. But the person shot this idiot shot at the sign with a dead center shot, and he's a, uh, I, I'm glad he's a bad shot because he missed the sign, but he destroyed a great velvet tuxedo coat and an Oscar De La Renta shirt uh, and a couple of leathers, but they stopped that little silly bullet. So uh, so if, uh, if God is in a plan, evil cannot prosper against us. And you go, girl, Kamala Harris. They can shoot my window out and they can talk you out, but still you rise. So you go, girl. <laughs> oh, you're too funny. Okay, well, congratulations on being able to have this wonderful uh, inaugural exhibit at the um, Ella Baker Center Restaurant Colors. Um, okay, now there's now there's tickets. Now, now let me tell people there's tickets involved. There's thirty dollars. They're they're doing a head count of eighty five. We got thirty people that have showed up. So you know, mm-hmm. I'm just saying, okay. you know, hurry up and buy them tickets because they ain't gonna be none. Uh, they only gonna have so much food, so much liquor. And the fire department lets so many people in. So I hope a thousand people come though. <laughs> Okay. All righty. So, yeah, my next guest is in the studio. So is there a way for people, like, how do they get tickets? Um, Go online uh, and uh, look up Daniel Buford Retirement Party. You can go to YouTube, look up Daniel Buford Retirement Party. There's a one-minute, 20-second video on YouTube. You put Daniel Buford Retirement Party or Benefit then, um, then it's very well done uh, by uh, Shiva Sabadi, um, a very beautifully done video that highlights uh, my uh, my activism and gives you contact work about the um, the restaurant and so on. Okay, alrighty, super. Well, thanks so much um, for the wonderful conversation. Look forward to seeing Thank you know you your exhibition the at the at the uh, Ella Baker Center and being in the audience for your. Ah, for your party um, on the 13th. All right. It's going to be a party over there. If ain't nobody else going to be happy, I'm going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure it's going to be contagious. All right. You take a care. Yeah. Thanks so much, and I'm so happy that you're safe. Me too. <laughs> you take right. care. God bless you. you too. God bless you too. Peace and blessings. Uh, good morning, uh, Chloe Hilliard. How are you? I'm doing great. And yourself? 
Oh, I'm fine. Thank you so much for for joining us to talk about. Uh, you're going to be uh, in the Bay for Sketch Fest. Tell us about that. And you're coming with this new book, um, F Your yes, Diet, absolutely. and other things my thighs tell me. And this yes. is fun, so well written. Oh, my goodness. Um, you, you know, it's just like, you know, using yourself and your, your own experience, um, particularly, you know, sort of your embodied experience, to just talk talk so much about American culture and history and um, and biases and sexism and racism and economics. It's just it's just so well done. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yes. Um I'm gonna be making my, my first my first trip to the bay. Um I've been there before it's but it's my time? first time my first time performing oh. there. Yes. Yes. I'm excited mm-hmm. about mm-hmm. that. Um, and so I'm a part of the sketch fair from there this Saturday, the 18th. I have three shows. Um, they got me got me fully booked all Saturday night. So you have three opportunities <laughs> to come and see me perform. Um, you can just go to Sketch Fest and, and find my name, and then it has, like, my whole itinerary. Um, and I recently released my book. My book, my debut book, dropped last week, Tuesday. It's called F Your Diet, and already it's selling so well that they've ordered a second print. So I'm very, very oh, happy really? about that. Yes, yes. I oh. think it's something that people people realize that um, they all relate to it. You don't have to be a bigger person or have dealt with weight issues to relate to just how we deal with food in this country. And so when you talk about all the social political things that I mentioned in the book. You know, the Bay has a very strong history when it comes to political activism. And, you know, the Black, Black Panther Party was very big advocates about ha- having whole foods and, and healthy foods for the community. And that's something mm-hmm. that we need more We need more of because it, when I was doing my research, I realized that most Americans, even though we are a first world country, we live in food deserts, which means that you have to physically get in a car or travel over a mile to get to a really good supermarket. And when you realize that people just don't have access to food and that because of that they are forced to make poor food choices, whether it's better on their wallet or it's just convenient, and then that starts the cycle of poor eating habits, gaining weight, health issues, and those are the things that plague us throughout our entire lives. And so it was important for me to write this book because, for so long, so many years, I myself have dealt with body image and weight and diets, and I've done every diet under the sun, only to realize that it's it's all just capitalism. It's all just a marketing tool to make us feel that we will never be perfect enough so that you're constantly buying into something and trying to be perfect. And so it was just a real big sigh of relief for me to write this book for myself as like a healing process to let myself know that I'm okay that I'm a healthy human being, even though I don't have washboard abs, that I'm still, a, you know, a productive citizen in this society, and I have something to say and something to contribute. And I think a lot of times we don't value people because they don't look pleasing to our own personal preferences. Mm-hmm. Right, right. And I just think it's, you know, so cool that, you know, that you physically take up, you know, space. You know, sometimes people are so small that they get you know, sort of um, overlooked. Um, but there's no way that anyone can overlook you, and you're just so beautiful, too. Uh, I was going to read your bio. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're really lovely. Um, 
Yeah, Chloe uh, Hilliard is a larger-than-life stand-up comedian. Well, that's because she's 6'1 and rocks a killer afro. Born in Brooklyn, New York, and raised in a large Hasidic Jewish neighborhood, Chloe has spun her unique experiences into side-splitting laughs. Once you know how to tell a story, you're set for life. As a journalist-turned-comedian, Chloe Hilliard is entertaining the masses with her wit and ability to find the humor in everything. For over 10 years, Chloe was a culture and entertainment journalist writing for The Village Voice, Essence, Vibe, King, and The Source. For her expertise on hip-hop culture, she's appeared on CNN, Headline News, ABC News, Our World with Black Enterprise and C-SPAN. Her work has been featured in Best African American Essays, 2009. Uh, She made her national TV debut on NBC's smash hit, Last Comic Standing, and has since appeared on AXS-TV, Comedy Central, True TV, MTV, and most recently, The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. And, uh, yeah, so so tell us um, sort of how you moved from, uh, you know, from your journalism to um, to performance art. And, yeah, and so then, yeah, mm-hmm. So I uh, I was a journalist for over 10 years. I was a, a staff writer, reporter, and editor in different publications. I worked at the Source Magazine, Vibe Magazine. I was a staff writer for the Village Voice, the illustrious Village Voice. And, um, mm-hmm. and I got to a point where I just really wanted to get into being in front of the camera. I had done everything in journalism outside of being a broadcast journalist. And so I took a stand-up comedy class. And I did that with the the only purpose of getting comfortable in front of people, being quick on my feet and being funny because I wanted to, like, interview folks on camera. And a part of that process was having a graduation show. And at the show, my friends came and everybody was so excited for me. And, you know, I did well. And they asked, you know, well enough for your first time. (laughs) But I'm not trying to make it seem like it was, like, Madison Square Garden. Um, But I did well. And... At the end of it, they asked me when was my next show. And so it kind of, you know, I just kind of got bit by the bug. And it's been 10 years since that happened. And it's definitely changed my life. It's allowed me to see the country. It's allowed me to interact with people and and witness things that I never thought I would witness. And it just, I feel it's made me just a more well-rounded person. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. And, you know, when you live in a big city, you tend to think that that's all the world has to offer meaning like you know there's no need to go anywhere else but as I've traveled I've learned a lot about myself a lot about America and it's given me a lot of perspective that I can now bring to the stage and help you know just make people see things a little differently so at my heart of hearts I'm still a journalist and that's why I love the fact that I was able to write this book because I was able to include a lot of facts and figures but mm-hmm. I also realized that I enjoy comedy, and I would love to continue to just mix the two. So I like to do that on stage. I like to bring facts with humor and leave people with something that they can digest and, and look up or understand later. Mm-hmm. Right. And I want to let our audience know that um, on the, the 18th, uh, January 18th is Saturday, um, the, the three sets are a 9 o'clock Live from the Alamo, and then um, that's that's where all they're all happening. <laughs> and mm-hmm. and and then and then um, yeah, the first the first set 
there are a lot of you all. And then at 10, um, there's just two, Adam uh, Conover does an hour, stand, hour of stand-up. And then um, with you, I presume. And yeah. and then at 10.15, there's, there's the Amazonians. Um, and that should be interesting. So so you are a constant in all of these different sets, if I'm reading it yes. correctly? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, okay. So I'm, I'm going to yeah. be jumping around. I'll, I'll be on the first show at 9, and then I'm mm-hmm. going to run over to the Adam Conover show. I mean, I don't – logistically, I haven't looked at a map yet, but I hope they're all close for, like, you know, Uber or Lyft distance. And then mm-hmm. I'll close out my night at the Amazonian. And the great thing about the Amazonian show, it is an all – it's an all-women's lineup. So whenever people talk mm-hmm. about lack of diversity or lack of women in comedy, just letting you know that the Amazonians is a, a through-and-through women's stand-up lineup, and every single woman on that show is absolutely hilarious. So you can't say women aren't funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So let's let's talk about, about your book. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I really... Um, and I enjoyed the prologue, di- Diabetes for Breakfast. And yeah. you just talk about, yeah, how, you know, how how one's uh, size or what one eats. I mean, children don't have a choice. I mean, we eat what our parents give us. And, um, and, and, and just sort of, you know, just sort of like looking at just sort of the history of the breakfast cereal and the breakfast in general and processed food, and it was like, it's just so. I mean, your your research is 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 wonderful. However, the way you weave it into uh, the discourse, it just it doesn't. It's not stuffy, you know. If people think mm-hmm. that about scholarly work, but it is ter- certainly scholarly. And you've done your research. I mean, like Kellogg, like who would have known? Seven Day Adventist, like. Really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I think that's the interesting thing in my research is that, I mean, I definitely had an amazing researcher assist me. It was it was so important mm. to me to have someone who just makes sure that I was actually stating the correct facts. The worst thing in the mm. world is to release release the work and people, you know, shoot it down and say, like, that's not accurate, that's not accurate. So the journalist in me was like, I need to be fact-checked. And mm-hmm. um, shout-out to Monica Wilder, my researcher, and what I found is that a lot of the things that we hold dear to our heart is like food traditions come out mm-hmm. of necessity or, or junk science. And so when we think about cereals and how every kid eats cereals, it's because John Kellogg wanted to prevent people from masturbating, and he thought that a bland cereal like cornflakes, uh, a food devoid of all spice or seasoning would calm the heated sexual palate of people and they would no longer masturbate. And so then you turn mm-hmm. around and you realize that's what kids eat every morning before they go to school. Um, same thing with Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola was originally a medicine and it had like cocaine in it. And so mm-hmm. when right. when when they when they decided to when the when Coca-Cola decided to take the cocaine out, the US government actually seized all of their um, all of their quantities because it, for false advertisement because they did no longer have cocaine in it. And so you just think about, like, the things that we've gone through in this country when it comes to food, for example, like tofu. The reason why tofu became an American staple in this country and farmers started farming the soybean is because of during the World War II, the Japanese internment camps, the, the prisoners there, they started farming their own soybeans to subsidize the poor food that they were receiving from the government. 
and that's how they they were able to stay stay alive and be fed because they started harvesting soybeans and then farmers saw that it was a a good crop and it was easy on the soil and so they started harvesting soybeans and that's why we have soy in everything so it's things like Mm -hmm. that when you learn and you just do a little bit more digging you realize oh okay the things that I thought were you know good about our food industry was actually out of like a weird thing that happened in history that led to what it is today Mm -hmm. right right and and when you talk about you know um, President uh, Ronald Reagan's nationwide fitness exam, yeah, I, I had never heard about that. Um, that was that was really interesting. Um, you know when you talked about that, and uh, you know juxtaposed to uh, growing up in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood, and and what that meant with regards to the kind of clothes that you wore to school. You know, sort of what was available, you know, commercially in your neighborhood. Insofar as yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. I grew up. I grew up in a Hasidic Jewish neighborhood, and my mother liked to dress me with some local wares, <laughs> which was hard when I went to my all-black elementary school because they were like, "Why are you wearing that?" And so I was already <laughs> a misfit and an outcast. And you know, combine combine what I was wearing, which which was not trendy, with my height and my size. I was, it was just a recipe for um, for ridicule, and that's exactly what happened. And all of those things just shaped and molded me and made me realize that my experience, even though it felt very isolated and unique to me, as I talk to people, especially as folks start reading the book and writing me, they, a lot of people eat from all walks of life, from all races, identify with the loneliness and the ridicule and the bullying and the weight issues that I dealt with. So that it's kind of, you know, helping me in this whole process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How long did it take you to write the book? It took me about, um, it took me about, if I, like, sat down, did not procrastinate, <laughs> it, mm-hmm. it took me about, like six, like, six months, like, six months to write the book. Oh, oh, really fast? Six months? Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and is it I mean, your I, first book? I, I, know, longer, I know you've been... Mm-hmm. I was saying, like, I had longer to do it, but I procrastinated. I'm just being honest. <laughs> mm-hmm. I was, it, was down yeah. to, it was down to the wire. Uh, yeah, this is my mm-hmm. first book. This is my first book. And it was the first time in a while that I wrote long form. I used to write really long form articles when I was the writer at the Village Voice, like, you know, a couple mm-hmm. thousand words. And mm-hmm. since doing comedy, jokes are very short. And so it was. it took a lot. That's why I procrastinated. It took a lot for me to just reactivate that part of my brain where you have to sit and really focus and write and, you know, turn the TV off and put on a nice little tune and just zone out. And so it was very, it was very cathartic to allow myself to just spill out on the keyboard or on the page, if you will. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And and you write about your beautiful mother. And uh, why don't you talk about, you know, sort of, um, you know, your home life and, uh, and um and sort of your yeah um do you have any siblings and just sort of um yeah how that impacts you know yeah. um the work yes i um i have a younger brother he and i are 15 years apart and mm. same parents and that was definitely fit yes he's 15 years younger yeah i'm 39 <laughs> and he is i'm 39 he's 24 
And okay. it was interesting because I, I identify as an only child because I was an only child for 15 years. And then he comes along and it kind of changes my, my world. But I still believe I have a perspective of that as a, of an only child. And um, mm-hmm. he's great. I love him. I adore him. I, I use him in some of my stand-up material because he's a millennial <laughs> and I am not. And so, and he also, we lived together. When he graduated college, he moved in with me. And um, I'm glad that I was able to allow that space for him as an older sibling. It's really hard, you know, as we see millennials have really a lot of things stacked against them when it comes to financial independence in this country. So I was very glad that I was able to allow a space where he could, like, live with me and thrive and, and work on his career. Um, and it's just every day is a challenge because we just I, he makes you feel like I'm a dinosaur. <laughs> he makes me feel like I'm out of thirty nine. Really? So I know, <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, just the other day he was telling me, uh, and I have a joke about it. How how I said I said gay. I called someone gay, and he said that they don't say gay anymore. They say queer, and that was just like my mind was blown because <laughs> I was like when I was. When I was a kid or growing up, not even like uh, six years ago, if you call somebody queer, it was a derogatory term. And so just to see the world through his eyes and his experiences and just how he and his friends navigate things is, is very is very inspiring and also just eye-opening. Hmm. <laughs> and, and tell us about your pretty mother. Yes, my mother. She's a dream. Um, my mom, you know, my mom... As, as people read this book, and especially when I talk about my experiences with the food and my mom, and yes, she put me on diets and sent me to school with swim fast, I realized that it was from a loving place. It was never, my, and 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 I have to really stress, my mother never ridiculed me. She never mocked me. She never made me feel ashamed of my size or my weight. Um, she always encouraged me to be the best person I could be. She always really stress education. I was always in accelerated or gifted programs growing up, and she was my biggest advocate. And when people would judge me for my size, meaning just my, not even my weight, but also my height, when adults would talk to me thinking that I was older or, you know, would people would try to, like, get over on me, she always stepped up to the plate and she protected me and she shielded me and she allowed me to be a child regardless of my physical form. And I think that's very important. And so, I don't look back and think, oh, she could have did this and she should have did that. She was doing what she thought could help at the time with a child who was overweight. And thankfully, we have so much more education and studies and science that allows us to understand the way to really approach these things. And I and I wish that more people and more parents would take that extra step instead of mocking and ridicule because the world is hard as it is, even if you are, you know, considered an attractive person or under, you know, or, or slim, there's always something, especially with internet trolls and comments, there's always somebody or something willing to tear down your character or make fun of your physical appearance. And so I think at home, it's important that parents support their children and educate them when it comes to nutrition and food and body and exercise. And so my mom is amazing. And, you know, we both have the same trainer now. She started going to my trainer a couple of years ago. So Every, you know, every couple of days I see her at our trainer working out. So she's doing really great. Mm, nice, nice, yeah. So I was wondering um, if you'd like to maybe share something from the book um, 
with our audience. Yes, absolutely. Let me let me get my hands on okay. the I mean, the titles of your chapters are so provocative. Let them be ketchup. Starving kids yes. in Africa. What would Janet Jackson do? <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm going to... I think I think one of the funniest ones that I'm going to share is that my um, I think we all had this experience in the 80s when your grandparents or your mom was telling you like you need to eat because you're starving kids in Africa. So I'm going to read just a little part, <laughs> um, <laughs> just a little paragraph. This is in uh, the chapter chapter two called Starving Kids in Africa. Um, I was in preschool and my grandmother. I was in preschool and my grandmother placed the lives of millions of people on the tip of my fork. I felt like Horton hearing a who. Dr. Seuss' well-intentioned elephant who took it upon himself to save a world living on the speck of dust. Talk about pressure. There was no further explanation. She wasn't about to break down the social and political crime conflict that was killing hundreds of thousands, possibly millions. Africa? Starving kids? I'm a kid. I don't want to starve. Wait. We're starving. Where's Africa? I haven't started school yet, so I haven't learned about Black History Month and the ships and shackles. The Lion King doesn't come out for a while, so what is this Africa you speak of, Grandma? Grandma, you got brand new Tupperware. If the kids are starving, can't we just send them these chicken gizzards and cow peas over to them? All my tiny brain could gather was that if I ate all my food, I was somehow helping people in a place I never knew existed. So that's part of your diet and other things my diet's tell me. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, well, definitely uh, maybe we might have to have you on again when I have completed the book so we can talk in yes. more detail about some of these wonderful, wonderful chapters. But it's a great read so far. I'm so enjoying it. And um, definitely hope I can get over to see you uh, in your first, uh, I guess, appearance here in the Bay Um Yes. You know, um, on stage, like, wow, new book, you know, coming here, you know, with your book as well as, you know, on stage uh, in three different um, ensemble performances, you know, on Saturday. Yes. That's going to be really awesome. Yeah, yeah. So congratulations on all fronts. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for this wonderful book. Yeah, and all the beautiful yeah, illustrations absolutely. on the back. <laughs> really, really nice well, book. Thank you. Yes, thank <laughs> Love you the so much. I appreciate it. The popcorn bra. That's really, really yes. provocative. <laughs> <laughs> it's an eye catcher for sure. Definitely, definitely. And um, I know we're over a little bit, uh, so Zach, hang in there. But I was wondering, you know, since today is uh, uh, will be the 91st birthday of Dr. King, I'm uh, wondering if you have any thoughts about, about his life um, sort of um, in keeping with you know, um, in your with your trajectory, you know, as yes. as a writer and um, as an artist and as a, a young person, because you're you're 39, and I think he he was assassinated when he was 39, right? Yeah, yeah. So I think it's very important that we, um, especially as a as a community, we continue to uphold and revere our icons. A lot of times we let things slide because time has passed. And the message that he speaks is so relevant today, and a lot of times young people don't know outside of the I Have a Dream speech. And I think he speaks a lot to what is happening in the world as a whole, where the people, the masses are 
standing up and challenging the political powers that are that are taking away our freedoms. And so it's very important to uh, to vote or to do voter registrations. It's very important to just have the dialogue about policy and not who you like as the best candidate because they make you feel good. Like we really need to break it down and, and really have very honest conversations about what we want as individuals, as a community, as a country. And I, I hope that we can continue to do the work that he so fearlessly gave his life for. And so I, I salute him and all those who are continuing to fight the fight for individual freedom and, and civil rights and just respect and ownership in this country. Right. Oh, thank you, Chloe. Um, that was beautiful. And I definitely sort of put you with those folks that are, you know, continuing, um, you know, to keep those those issues um you know, in front of us and, and what could be more important than, than our you know, um than than our image, you know, body images as, as black women, as African American women and about health and about inclusion, right? And belonging. Yes. And so, you know, with your work and with yourself like being out there, like having a physical presence in in these spaces where, you know, there aren't a whole lot of black women doing this, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, we don't really, we so really are... don't have the conversation. Mhm. Right. Right. Yeah. So this is just part one. We're gonna have another one. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Yeah. I'm with All it. Right, well, safe Thank travel. you so much. Oh, you're quite welcome. Thank congratulations you. on your book and congratulations on your upcoming show this weekend. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. Peace and blessings. Bye. Bye. Oh, good morning, Zach. How are you? I'm doing all right. How are you doing, Wanda? Oh, I'm good. My goodness, your book. Oh, my goodness. We Keep Us Safe, uh, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities. It is like, whoa, it is so awesome. Oh, it is right like, on. I really appreciate it. It's four years in yeah. the making and probably more four than years. that if you count all the work we've been up to. Oh yeah, yeah. It's and it's not even super long, but it's it's a book that you want to read every every single word in there because it's just so thoughtfully assembled. And I just love. I mean, Van Jones is for it. It's like, oh, I mean, it's just oh, it's just wow. Right on, right on. Yeah, <laughs> I was really honored to have his forward. You know, I started as an intern at the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, and now I'm the executive director. And mm-hmm. he was one of the critical people to kind of bring me into this work. So it was a real honor to have his foreword on the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember that campaign, I think, that you started, you know, Books Not, uh, was Books Not Bars? Is, was that yeah, something that I you designed? Uh, it was not a campaign that I designed, but I helped start it as an intern. I remember... Uh, one of our fellow interns, Bernadette Armand, designing one of the first Books Not Bars kind of brochures and flyers. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of that started as I was starting as a law school student and intern at the Ella Baker Center right at around the turn of the century, which makes me sound old or something, but that's that's when it was. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah, yeah. That's really something. I mean, would you have imagined that? that you be running things, right? <laughs> I know. 20 years later, I feel kind of like the 
I don't know if you remember those McDonald's commercials with Calvin where he goes from the, like, fried cook to, to managing the store. Um, not that I love McDonald's, but, it's, you know, kind of a, a useful metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so I was wondering, uh, I'm going to read your bio, and then I want to ask you if you could maybe talk a little bit about uh, Ella Baker, you know, the person yeah, who, uh, whose name your center carries, Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. And, again, um, you, you're the executive director, and uh, and the um, the center creates campaigns related to civil engagement, violence prevention, juvenile justice, and police brutality with the goal of shifting mm-hmm. economic resources away from prisons and punishment and towards economic opportunity. Um, you are also the co-founder of Restore Oakland, and you're going to tell us about that too, and Justice Absolutely. for Families, both of which focus on the power of community action. And you graduated from Harvard and took your law degree from New York University. And you can connect with Zach at Zach W. Norris. Yeah, yeah. On Twitter, I'm Zach W. Norris. Um, you can find the book at zachnorris.com. And um, you can learn more about us at ellabakercenter.org. And Ella Baker was a brilliant black woman. She uh, really led from a different way. She wasn't the kind of outspoken, uh, always out in front. She really uh, believed in the power of everyday people to make change. And so she empowered students and sharecroppers alike to fight for justice, um, to fight within the black freedom and the freedom struggles of the long decade of the 60s. She helped organize sit-ins. She helped uh, provide mentorship to the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. So we try to lead in her legacy, and our motto is she led, so can you, because we really uh, understand leadership to be something that we can all embody. Mm, nice, nice, yeah. And and what brings you to the work? Yeah, um, I come to this work uh, growing up in East Oakland um, and really seeing, you know, my own privilege play out in different ways. Um, being a light-skinned African-American male who went to Catholic school, I had a lot of privileges that some of my uh, counterparts did not. I ended up going to Harvard as an undergrad, as you mentioned, and that's when I really saw just how differently young people could be treated when they made mistakes because when my classmates at Harvard got in trouble They got maybe a semester off. They got counseling. They got the supports and services they needed. Um, But I saw friends and family members locked up for doing many of the same things, from getting in fights to using and and abusing drugs. And, you know, one of my other mentors is uh, Brian Stevenson, um, Mm -hmm. who I got to study with during law school, and he said that, you know, we are all more than our worst mistake or something to that effect. And that's, right. mm-hmm. that's how those young people at Harvard were treated, right? It was very clear that whatever mistake they made, that they were more than that mistake and that they would get the support they needed to get back on track. Um, and that's what makes communities actually safe. And so what led me to this work is really seeing those inequities and really wanting to do something about them. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. So, so talk to us about about your book. Um, you know, we keep us safe. 
um, because it's not just theory. Um, the um, Restore Oakland is, is a seems to be a way of actually um, having making this tangible because you you talk yeah. you know in this really wonderful introduction us versus them and I was thinking about us the movie. <laughs> mm. um, yeah, and and you know and the people that are like our shadows, you know, and we can mm. think of them being like the people on top and the people on bottom. They're the same people, right? And it's just mm. it's just the shadow side of of oneself and and, you know you're thinking about sort of Jung and and thinking about you know the dream state and how that's the real state and you think about Mm. the presentation and how um it's just it's just perception and 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 if there's kindness like you know you sort of think back to the movie if there was kindness and and uh, not the attempt to like uh sort of deny the existence of this other self. Yeah. <laughs> then maybe yeah. things might have ended up differently. Yeah, I'm following But it got you. to this I, point of crisis. I'm yeah, I'm mostly following you. I haven't seen the movie because I'm so scared of scary movies to be honest. Oh, it's but, scary. Um, oh my god, it's so scary. But you could do it once and then Okay, do it and once. Then, and then okay. sleep with yeah. a, you could do it once. I I couldn't do it twice, but I'll tell you how yeah. scared I am of scary movies. I still haven't even seen Get Out, so you know I'm like oh, petrified. Get Out, but I'm trying to think which one I is scarier. Oh, I don't know. Um, I can't tell you which one is scarier, Get Out or that okay. one. You, but you could okay. do each one once, but you can't do them and don't do them as a double feature. <laughs> okay, I will not do that. I will take your advice, Wanda. Um, but I follow your meaning, and I I feel like that's absolutely true. It's like there are different ways of looking at this issue of safety, right? And mm-hmm. what what happens is we get driven by a narrative of fear, and we don't, in that state of fear, identify what's really going on and what's really happening. And what's happening now is that crime rates are actually declining, but because there's such levels of insecurity, people don't have homes. Um, you know, I just dropped my daughters off at school, and their school may be closed at the end of this year. Schools are being shut down. Oh, um, wow. People are are on the streets across Oakland and across this country. And so there's, there's this rising insecurity, and people are being harmed. But our criminal court system doesn't address all of those harms that are right around us, housing insecurity, lack of good education, um, and people are self-medicating as a result. In, in, in fact, the, the, the criminal court system just addresses crime, which is really through the narrow lens of the powers that be that want us to um, stay in our place. So we see right now in Oakland the these four moms who are who are trying to keep their home in Oakland and all the state can do, all the police can do is push them out of that home to protect this private property. And so that mm-hmm. is an example for me of the way in which we've really got things backwards in terms of what actually makes us safe. I think if the if the book could be boiled down to one sentence, it would really be that when we take care of the public and we take care of all of the public, we really take care of public safety. Mhm. Right. Yeah. 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 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's just really, um, you know, just in your introduction, um, which is as far as I got into the book right now, um, it just yeah, really lays it out really, really well, just sort of the plan. And, um, you know, starting with, um, you know, something that happens to you, you know, um, you know when, mm-hmm. when you're not home, you know, that someone tries to break into your, well, someone breaks into your home, and yeah. you just reflect on your children's, your daughter's room where all the glass was, where they would have been lying if you would have been there. But the whole idea is to to not lose sight of the humanity of the the person who committed the crime. That's right. You know, that this is a person, as opposed to dehumanizing this person or people, whomever. That's right. That's right. And and see, what we can do is take that example – and bring it to scale. And that's what Devon Bogan has done in Richmond. In Richmond in, you know, 2005 was one of the highest crime rates in all of the country, the highest murder uh, rate per capita. It was in the top 10. And the city had declared a state of emergency. Everybody had up in arms and saying, what are we going to do? Devon Bogan came to Richmond. He said, I want to try this fellowship program. Um, and, you know, people were so frustrated. They're like, well, I don't know what that is, but hey, let's try it. Um, it's a mentorship program. The police had already identified what they thought to be the 30 or so people who were responsible for, um, most of the murders and shootings in Richmond. Um, and Devon brought those young men into a room overlooking all of Richmond Uh, one of the nicest rooms in the city, and he said, you know, um, people are up in arms about this this problem of violence in Richmond, but no one has come to you and asked you what do you think should happen and how do we solve this problem together. He actually engaged them in an 18-month fellowship program where Mm -hmm. they got daily positive contact from mentors. They got a monetary stipend, and they had travel opportunities to kind of expand their horizons. And the the media got wind of this and said, wait, wait, let me get this right. You're paying people to not shoot each other because they were focused on this monetary stipend. Um, Mm -hmm. But the city officials really rallied around Devon and supported him because they saw that it was working. They saw that when these young people had an opportunity to actually – understand the the cause and the consequences of their actions and to expand their horizons, they were able to, you know, move in a different direction and and Mm -hmm. actually kind of quash the beef that was in between some of the the rival neighborhoods. And that resulted in something like a 70% decline um, in the homicide rate in Richmond, which wasn't just you know, a wonderful thing for um, the predominantly uh, black men who were being affected by violence. It was really a wonderful thing for all of Richmond. Um, and and that's a story that I think deserves to be told over and over again because it really puts the lie, uh, shows that it's a lie that we can punish our way out of these problems, that the real solution is actually to invest in young people, to invest in their families, and that is really the foundation of safety. Mm-hmm. 
Wow. Wow, that's a really beautiful story. Yeah. Yeah. It's, wow. And it's, it's, and it's a tangible that, example, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of the stories that I focus on in the book. Um, the book is really mm-hmm. aimed at telling people's stories, and there's some stories that are positive like that one, and there's some stories that are harder to read, but I actually go through and reimagine in the latter half of the book, I reimagine three different stories and how they might be different if we adopted a cult, what I call a culture of care as opposed to this mm-hmm. framework of fear. The framework of fear says um, you made a mistake, you're the problem, we're going to separate you from the community, we're going to isolate you, we're going to punish you. A culture of care says, no, we can actually hold you accountable while still holding you in community. We know that in order to actually answer for what you have done, you actually need to be in dialogue with the people that you have harmed. And that's what restorative justice is all about. It's really about holding people accountable while still holding them in community. And it really works. It works for the folks who have caused the harm because recidivism rates or the rates at which people get in trouble again are much lower, so people are less likely to harm someone else. And victims report much higher satisfaction rates with the restorative justice process because they can see the accountability that has occurred. They can feel it. They know that um, this person is is making amends. Um, And so that's really one of the true win-wins. You know, a lot of times people say win-win and it's actually disguising something that isn't a win um, for some of us, but this is a true win-win both for the person who's been harmed and the person they've they've harmed, and that's the direction that we should be moving in in terms of our public safety systems. Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. Well, I'm really happy that you, um, you sort of talked about um, the culture of care and um um and the uh the the fear the fear based model mm-hmm. because I was gonna ask you about that. And and I was just thinking of a few things were sort of rolling through my mind as I as I was reading this. Um I was thinking about um not just re, uh, restorative justice, but I was thinking about transformative justice and mm-hmm. uh and I was thinking about the book, you know, The Revolution Starts at Home and um and and how how you know your your book we keep us safe is is in um is in conversation you know with with you know sort of what does safety mean and how can we keep mm-hmm. our our community safe the community itself not bringing in law enforcement because i was listening to um snap judgment um this weekend i, I like that podcast show um on KQED and um and they were um um uh, I guess they were in collaboration with a, a couple of um, of um, audio programs, and 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 the show was about um, a, a person who, as a youth, um, shot a policeman in his neck, but the policeman lived, and mm-hmm. um, and so he was convicted, and he ended up, you know, many years later in San Quentin, and I don't remember mm-hmm. the names. Um, but it was just this past Saturday, if anybody wants to look it up, um, and listen themselves. And so um, he he had a lot of remorse. The person, um, you know, who harmed uh, this this other person, and uh, and so at the parole hearing, um, you know, he was denied, and the person who he harmed was there, prepared to give all these reasons why he shouldn't get parole. But then he, 
you know, they didn't remember each other because it had been like 20 years or something. And mm-hmm. and so when um, when the person who was harmed looked at the person um, who had harmed him, you know, who was a kid, and then he heard all these, heard what had happened to the child, you know, that his mother mm-hmm. was um, addicted to drugs. And he at, I don't know, five years old, something really young, um, you know, had to take care of his siblings. And so what he did was he cut grass. Um, to make take the mm. money and then buy food for his his siblings and then they end, ended up in the foster care system and mm. uh, and anyway and it wasn't a good good situation for him and he ended up becoming a member of a gang which was the first place that you know his circumstances were not held against him like being a foster care kid and yeah. um, and so and so the person who was the um, uh, who was shot he he understood the context. Of, of the right. training of the kid who was trying to kill him, and it's like, oh well, you know, like I get it because because he had been trained, you know, as a policeman, and yeah. he said that when he would walk to the door of a house or whatever, you know, for whatever reason that he was called, he would say, if you don't see my solution on my belt, then you 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 know you you call the wrong department. And mm. I'm like, wow, I never heard that mm. like that. So. So, you know, mm-hmm. sort of rolling back to um the whole idea of restorative justice and um and and transformative justice, which, you know, sort of is a, a deeper, more long term kind of way of looking yeah. at, you know, safety and accountability. Yeah, I was just thinking, um, that you yeah, know, this book is just it's, such a it's, gift. It's interesting that you uh describe that story because it it for me really reminded me of the the book itself um in the sense that what I do in the book is um give the reader an opportunity to almost have a rewind button so I take mm. uh folks through a story of um uh James and Marlena and um James um actually killed both of his parents and Marlena is his sister um and I describe James's story um, and it it ends with the tragedy of him um, killing both of his parents and ending up in prison for life. And um, but really trying to understand what led to that event and what are the different points of intervention going all the way back to school, elementary school, uh, for James that could have um, led him down a different trajectory. And if we adopted kind of a culture of care in our society, the way in which these tragedies, um, so many tragedies could be averted. And I think, um, you know, it's, it's important because a lot of times we can look at some of these tragic stories and just be like, Oh, you know, that's just a terrible thing that happened. But if we actually invested in the kinds of systems that support families when they have, um, are, are, are navigating poverty and insecurity, um, that support folks who are um, using and abusing drugs, we we could really transform the lives of communities and really create much safer communities for everyone, um, police officers included. And and that that is something that um, I think needs to be told, and, and we, we need to develop that kind of radical imagination, as Dr. King, I think, uh, described and talked about, um mm-hmm. so i i'm with you i think here i'm i'm 
sitting and talking to you within the building called Restore Oakland, um, which yes. really is about um, restorative and transformative justice because um, we have one of the nation's only dedicated spaces to restorative justice, for restorative justice mm-hmm. here in this building. We have a restaurant that will be run by formerly incarcerated folks and others who have been locked out of opportunity. It will be run by the Restaurant Opportunity Centers United. The restorative justice mm-hmm. space is being used by restorative justice for Oakland youth and community works. Um, and it's also a space for organizing and transformation. The Ella Baker Center and Kazahusta Just Cause are in this building mm-hmm. because oh, nice. we want to make sure to hold uh, elected officials accountable to this vision of a transformed city. And we know that we can't do that without good organizing and, and really holding people's feet to the fire. Um, and and we also can't do it if people can't see the vision uh, of what safety looks like beyond um, just a focus on policing and prisons, right? Because so much mm-hmm. of the mythology of programs like Law and Order and Cops and all of these television shows and the physical architecture of prisons themselves really kind of almost dominate the public imagination and crowd out other real solutions. And so Restore Oakland is right here in East Oakland at 1419 34th Avenue in the Fruitvale. It's a beautiful building and really it's a brick and mortar vision of what community safety looks like when it's really um, done in the interest of community members. Mm, wow, wow. This is really, really awesome. Um, and uh, from what I, I noticed um, from the link on, um, you know, Restore um, uh, Oakland, that uh, that it's it's still being developed presently, um, that there's a, it's a building project. I mean, the way that it looks in the... Um, uh, in the illustration yeah. is not how it looks presently or well it's close so we're occupying okay. the building i'm not i shouldn't say mm-hmm. occupying we're in the building we co-own the building <laughs> with the the ella baker center co-owns the building with the um restaurant opportunity centers united um the only thing okay. that isn't open as yet is the restaurant hasn't had its official launch um but the rest mm-hmm. of the building is open the space for restorative okay. justice is open to the public it's actually free mm-hmm. um so you mm-hmm. can work with tash win at restore oakland um dot mm-hmm. org to 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 mm-hmm. book the restorative justice room cuz we don't want it to just be available to nonprofits and uh, or just as a a formal diversion program away from the justice system although that is important we also want it to be available as an informal space so if you're having a problem with, you know, folks in your neighborhood, we can, you know, hopefully connect you with a circle keeper who can help resolve some of that conflict um, so that we're not reliant on uh, police who, you know, as, as you mentioned, sometimes are coming with this mindset of um, a particular mindset that isn't helpful. And we've seen the tragic results. Uh, of um, policing in black and brown communities across this country over and over again. So really in the book, I describe the ways in which we can reduce the need for police and really mm-hmm. be um, uh, activating what I call um, first other first responders and other folks that have called them community guard, guardians and 
really looking at mm-hmm. all of the different issues from unsheltered crisis to mental health um, issues to substance abuse. There are a whole host of issues that really should be dealt with from a public health approach because public health issues deserve public health solutions. And what we've done is really criminalize a whole set of um, issues in ways that actually worsen the problems rather than solve them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was just thinking um, when you when you spoke about how um, uh, Brian Stevenson, you know, MacArthur uh, Fellow, and, you know, now there's this movie that's getting all these awards mm-hmm. <laughs> with the title yeah. of, of his book, Super Just Mercy. Um, yeah. yeah, his book, Just Mercy, A Story of Justice and uh, Redemption. And I just think... Um, uh, you know, we keep a safe, building secure, just, and inclusive communities is is sort of like, you know, sort of in that particular tradition. And um, right and in on. Stevenson's book, you know, he tells all these great stories about his case. We meet these, you know, children, you know, that are in, you know, in solitary confinement or conf- or confined with adults and being abused. And, and then we see, you know, how, um, you know, just through the work, you know, he's able to sort of change the way these systems operate. And similarly, you know, through the work of the Ella Baker Center and your work, you know, you're able to change these systems and shut down, you know, prisons before they get built, you know, for young people, which was a real wonderful um, accomplishment of the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Right. And and then you think about the Equal Justice Institute and, and then, you know, you all have um, the um, Restore Oakland. You know, uh, yeah, no, right on. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I appreciate that. Um, uh, I I had a chance to work with Brian Stevenson in Alabama as a law school student and just learned mm-hmm. so much from him. I've had really good fortune to have some amazing mentors. Um, really appreciated Michelle Alexander's endorsement of the mm-hmm. book and have had an opportunity to get to know her uh, as a board member. For a while, on the um, she's still an honorary board member of the Ella Baker Center, so we really appreciate her support. Um, but yeah, as as you you mentioned, we have had success in actually shutting down youth prisons here in the state of California in alliance with amazing organizations like the Center for Juvenile and Criminal Justice and the Youth Justice Coalition. We fought a campaign to close uh, five of the eight youth prisons in the state of California, and some people, some listeners aren't be thinking, oh, my gosh, that means crime must have went up. But no, crime went down during that same period. It was a, a victory for human rights because young people were no longer, or, or not as many young people were being subjected to solitary confinement. And, and at the same time, youth crime continued to go down. So it was a victory for human rights and a victory for public safety. Uh, and so that is something that I think, uh, folks can learn about also in this book. Uh, there's a whole chapter that really uh, describes our our campaign um, to close youth prisons in the state of California and some of the the people who were impacted um, by that campaign as well. Mm, right. Yeah. So this book is, you know, it's a witness, but it's also you know a handbook. It's got practical application and uh, yeah (laughs) right right and and I really appreciate you know sort of your acknowledgement of the trauma you know that um is persistent you know in our communities and um 
and how you know the work needs to um to work to heal and 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 you know create spaces where this is not something that's so common that's right that's right yeah, yeah. i mean one of my pivotal moments was was being in a jail cell after getting arrested, we were fighting the construction of a what would have been the largest per capita juvenile hall in the country in Alameda County. We called it the Super Jail for Youth. And just being mm-hmm. in that jail cell after civil disobedience and just seeing, you know, so many young black men uh, come through Santa Rita and just the the way in which that was a normal experience, and it wasn't and it shouldn't be. Um, and that mm-hmm. is something that has really stuck with me, and, and we can actually shift that um, by by um, relating to one another differently, but also by changing these policies that um, have gone on for too long um, that have incarcerated, you know, disproportionate numbers of, of black and brown um, people. hmm Right, yeah. And your book, uh, We Keep a Safe, Building Secure, Just, and Inclusive Communities, um, is is officially not out yet. Um, it's, uh, no, you got the gonna, sneak peek on that. Yeah, yeah. So it's uh, February, is it February 4th? Is that um, when it's right. going to um, hit the streets? 4th, February 4th, it hits the streets, and we're having a launch event here at Restore Oakland at 6 o'clock, so folks can come at 1419 34th Avenue, Oakland, California. Please come check us out. You can also um, get the book at zachnorris.com. You can also get it on and uh, pre-order at Powell's uh, is is one bookstore that you can pre-order to make sure it arrives. Um, right there on February 4th. Okay, super. All righty. Well, congratulations, and definitely um, putting that date in my book so I can come and see Restore uh, really Oakland it, facilities and, and be there to like, get my, get my autograph and say congratulations in person. Uh, right on. I really appreciate <laughs> it, Wanda. We've known each other for a long time, so that's going to be an honor to be able to sign that book for you. And I hope other oh, well, folks thank will you come so out much. as well. Yeah. Oh, of course they will. It's going to be like try to get there early so you can get in the room. That's right. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, because we really appreciate, you know, your work, uh, Zach, over the years and your continued commitment, you know, to, to our community. Um, this is, right. you know, this is like, uh, you know, something that's, you know, this is what you've dedicated your life to. And, and we really appreciate right. that. And we appreciate your family for supporting you in this this passion that you have for for um, you know justice and liberation for right the lesser and the more silenced of our community. Right on. I appreciate it. All right. Well, you take good care. All right. Take care, Wanda. I appreciate you. Bye-bye. Okay. okay. Peace and blessings. I appreciate you too. Peace and blessings. Ah, uh, good morning, uh, S. Pearl Sharp and um, Mrs. Uh, Mildred Pitts Walter. How are you? Good morning. Good morning. Good, good morning. Congratulations on this wonderful book. It just arrived yesterday. Something inside so strong. Life in pursuit of choice, courage, and change. Yes. Yeah. You, <laughs> yeah. We have um. Ooh, got a lot of feedback. Okay. Maybe hold on one second. Okay. 
Hello? Hello. Okay. Oh, yeah. That's, that's better. <laughs> yeah. I think it might be because maybe you, you have two different phones or something. Yes. Okay. Maybe you could just be on speaker and then you just have one well, phone. Yes. Yes. Oh. Okay. <laughs> so better. you have a um no, that's much better. You have a reading this Sunday, right? Yes, there in San Mateo. Right, right. Why don't we uh S Pearl, can you give us those details so our audience can make sure that they are in the house? I think it's eleven o'clock in the morning. Well, it's uh, during the coffee hour of the mm-hmm. um service. The service is at ten. And then okay. at 11, uh, mm-hmm. the, the coffee hour, I will be signing books there Where? at okay. the Unitarian Church on St. Inez uh, Street in San Mateo. Okay, cool, super. Will you be? Um, will there be any reading um, allowed of the book? Um, yes, there will the be service? some reading um, of special um, sections. Um, the minister there was quite interested in the reluctant writer and the chapter mm. on the reluctant writer. So I will mm. read from that and some of that, and I will probably read from The Awakening. Mm, mm-hmm. Nice, nice, yeah, yeah. So S. Pearl, you, you came up. Um, from Southern California to be with your friend for this this occasion of her book launch. No, she's still we're still here in Southern California, and she'll be flying oh. up on Friday, uh, so she'll be there all weekend. She used to live in oh. San Mateo, so that's you know she has oh. a whole community there that is excited about the book. And the book, by the way, mm-hmm. is something inside so strong, life in pursuit of choice, courage, and change, and it's been published by University of Mississippi Press. Oh, I thought I thought um I thought you were in San Mateo still, um uh, Miss Tiff Walter and and that Oh, okay. So you're in Southern California now. I see. Okay. I'm in uh, Pasadena, <laughs> California now at an oh. assistant living place. Okay. Okay. <laughs> oh, okay. All righty. So, um, I was going to um, ask Pearl if you'd like to introduce um, uh, uh, Ms. Uh, Mildred or I could read um, her bio. Um, it's up to, you know, whatever you like because, you, you know, you're a friend, and so, you know, you could give us a more in-depth uh, introduction because you told me some things I didn't know. Well, some things you don't know is that she's lively, sprite in 97, and takes a walk every morning. So for those of you who are having trouble getting your health together, just come on and watch her. <laughs> and uh, and I used to show up in San Mateo, and she'd open the door with a sweet potato pie just out the oven that she made. So <laughs> nice, nice, wow, wow, yeah. And yeah. Uh, so she's, uh, she's she is the author of 21 books for young children, mm-hmm. for children and young readers. And uh, this is her autobiography that's just come out. And in addition to being a writer and being one of the pioneers in developing black books for children, I mean black books for our children, she also was involved in the civil rights movement. Her husband was the head of the Los Angeles chapter of CORE. 
So they were very involved in training the Freedom Riders who went to Mississippi. Um, they were very involved in the uh, testing the UNRU Act here in California about redlining and housing. Uh, they were active in getting Bank of America and some of the supermarkets to hire black people for the first time. So, um, And she remains an activist today. Even today, um, she will be very happy to talk to you about reconciliation. So oh, let me give you okay. back to her. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and and also um, you know, um, you know some of your children's books Justin and The Best Biscuits in the World and Mississippi Challenge. Yeah, I I know I know I know your work as as a, a children's um writer. Um yeah, cuz I I like children's literature. <laughs> and, oh. You know, and I remember reading your books to my children and just reading oh. them to myself cuz I like I like you know young adult <laughs> children's books. Um, yes. Now I'm reading it to my grandchildren, so I want to thank you, thank you for the wonderful work. Um, you know, particularly when there weren't that many writers, you know, that many writers published that were writing, you know, for right. you know our children. You know, so really right. appreciate that. Yeah, and um, and I and I'm from Louisiana. I'm from New Orleans, and oh. um, and so yeah. So whenever it's like, even though you know I grew up in San Francisco. Um, um, when when I was in New Orleans, uh, it was segregated still, and oh, so yeah. um, that was one of the reasons why we left. And um, yes, I appreciate you know your your work uh, as an activist, um, you know, because when I look at you know the protests and people were literally putting their bodies on the line, I just like wow, I'm like, um, I I just wonder if I could have done something like that, you know, because well, you could just, have. Mm. <laughs> um, it, it takes um, being with others and becoming one with others. Mm. You can do almost anything, and that mm. is what we did. We we put our lives online. We would sing together and uh, get ourselves ready for facing. Um, the evil that was done uh, and letting the evildoer know that we were one, including the evildoer. And if they would just listen, they would know that we were there to make this a better world. And that Mm -hmm. is how we were able to go to jail and to face dogs and water hoses, we knew that what we were doing was to make it a better world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And and in 2020, you know, so as you look at this world as it is presently and you think about uh, sort of um, what the vision was, um, particularly, you know, today is uh, Dr. would have been Dr. King's 91st birthday, yeah. And um so so you're you're his peer. I mean, you know, at at ninety seven, yes, you know, you all were like the same age almost. Right. Um, and he was younger, a little younger than yeah, I. A little younger. And, mm-hmm. But not that much. But we mm-hmm. I marched with him uh in LA once and mm-hmm. he and the um legislator from uh New York Clayton, uh, Adam, Clayton. Adam, Adam Clayton Powell, the, mm-hmm. uh, the two of them 
were together, and we went against a drugstore there that wouldn't let us sit at the counters to have mm. ice cream. Yes. And, of oh. course, my <clears throat> my husband and I did a lot to change the housing um, patterns in Los Angeles. Los Angeles mm. was segregated almost as much as Chicago, or maybe just as much. And um, we marched and moved against the builder who had federal money and wouldn't sell to us. I went to jail in Torrance, California, uh, Mm -hmm. to uh, make sure that we were given that right. Mhm. Oh wow! So you've done some work in uh, in housing uh, equity. Yes, yeah. excellent. Yeah, yes. I presume that you know now you know looking at how many people are under and unhoused. Um, just like yesterday, um, uh, yeah. Uh, the, the, you know these mothers who had occupied a vacant house were taken mm-hmm. away um, in in handcuffs um, in Oakland. Yeah, I was yeah. wondering sort of. How you feel, you know, seeing like so many people in tents and other inadequate um, shelter, and it's so cold. I mean, I don't know what it's like in Southern California, but in Northern California, it's a bit chilly um, when the well, sun goes down. Here, it gets chilly here, uh, mm-hmm. especially at night and near the ocean, Santa Monica, mm-hmm. uh, Los Angeles. Um, Pasadena is not quite as cold, but it gets mm-hmm. chilly early in the morning. Right. Wanda yeah. was almost late getting mm-hmm. to her this morning because they were clearing out a major um, mm-hmm. tenting encampment, a uh, homeless encampment, and they were stopping traffic so that they could get their big trucks in. And I looked at it. I wish I'd had my camera because there were like mm-hmm. five police cars. There were three mm-hmm. huge um city trash trucks, there was some other kind mm-hmm. of orange city owned thing, all of that all of that equipment, all of those people and I was thinking what mm-hmm. if the money that's being spent to clean this out had been spent to do something else on the housing situation. Right. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, because yesterday they even had tanks in, you know, West Oakland in, in a you know, um a uh, residential community. I mean, they came at five AM with big guns and explosives and and it was really a good thing that they the women knew that the mothers knew that they were going to come because the children weren't there because I can't can't imagine you know so that the trauma those poor children would have suffered um had they been present you know when 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 all of these law enforcement you know um came to to this uh house and mm-hmm. and the women, you know, were not armed. You know, they always said that it was nonviolent, you know, um, uh, civil disobedience. Yet, um, you know, I can't imagine how much money, like you just mentioned, you know, that happened today in Southern California, how much money goes into this, you know, to this armament, you know, mm-hmm. uh, kind of response to, um, you know, housing or shelter and all these other Human rights that um, that are not acknowledged, you know, in our in our nation. And one of the things I wonder not only how much money they're spending, but um, 
what happens to the women, you know, later? Do they now have a, a record because they've been arrested, you know, just trying to mm-hmm. defend their home? That that's you know, these these are the issues. One of the things I've learned from working with uh, Mrs. Walter and working on the book is that mm-hmm. these things just keep repeating. We keep repeating. Mm-hmm. I mean, she's writing about the work mm-hmm. she did back in the 50s and the 60s and with housing, and now we're in a whole other century, and, you know, it's still happening. I'm going to give you back to her. <laughs> right. <laughs> yes. It is, it yes. is happening. So, it, it mm-hmm. is happening because the nation is suffering from the traumatic stress syndrome from slavery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We have never discussed slavery and ended this kind of inhumane treatment. Each, most of, so many of the people feeling that they are individuals, and individuals cannot act humane because they mm-hmm. feel they can take care of themselves. But one. The humans need to care and be cared for. And until mm-hmm. we recognize that and discuss the racism that has been in this nation since 1649, the kind of slavery that had never existed before existed here, until we can discuss that and come to a period of reconciliation, nothing will change, I feel, for the better in terms of racism and the inhumane treatment out of fear, guilt, and fear that is still in this nation. Congress Mm -hmm. apologized uh, back in... uh, 2014, and they did nothing after the apology, yet the uh, Christians feel that they must do what Jesus said, don't bring your offering to the church when you know that you have wronged your brother. You go to your brother and ask forgiveness. And then you come back and pay your service to God. They didn't do that. They apologized, which admitted that they had wronged who? Africans and their descendants here. So I don't know, uh, Wanda, but I feel very strongly that until that happens, the nation will not be healed. Mhm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people thought um last year, you know, for the um 400 years of African American history and the commission that was um uh was given, you know, sort of the the charge to um uh to promote, you know, programs in community around around the contributions of people of African descent to this nation and and they are continuing, you know, this year um there was um there was a big conversation about reparations um that um uh that you well, know had been can had be before. no reparations mm-hmm. until they consider uh, 
all the laws in the Constitution created because of slavery. Um, They pay reparations to property. Of course, we were property. And they feel, I'm sure, that with the Constitution still claiming us as three-fifths of a person, they can't give us reparations. We are property. And property, uh, you can only pay reparations for, for property. And that law was created because we were considered property, and if somebody took us, they had to repay. So mm-hmm. I don't know why our legislators, I mean African-American legislators, won't discuss this and see if we can't find a way for reconciliation and repairment and, uh, you know, repayment for that. We can't do it. They have tried it with the um, reconstruction period. Then they tried it with the Kerner report, and nothing happened because um, I feel, now I may be wrong, the Constitution won't allow it. Hmm. Yeah. So do I hear you saying that the Constitution um, needs to be amended? That's so it, that, to um, get rid okay. of the idea that we are property. Uh-huh. Right, because we're not people. Mm-hmm. We, we are not uh, considered capable of being repaid. We, uh, we don't own anything. We mm-hmm. were owned. So mm-hmm. now I may be interpreting this wrong, but I don't think so. And until mm-hmm. that is... <clears throat> Discussed, and and there is reconciliation, <clears throat> and the realization that all of those laws were created for slaves, slavery, uh, the uh, the law for pay, repaying for property, and the laws that give certain states the right to um, claim the election, uh, the electoral college, all of those things. Uh, And I was so surprised with the 1619 um, memorial Uh that they said that when we came here, we were slaves. We were not slaves when, uh, I mean, Africans were not slaves when they landed here in 1619. They were indentured servants. And it was not Mm -hmm. until in the 1640s that Africans became slaves uh, when Punch uh, ran away with two... uh, other and white indentured servants, and they were caught. The indentured servants were given 40 lashes, two years to their, uh, one year to their owner, and 
two years to the colony. Punch was given lifetime to his own, the person who had paid for his passage. So Mm -hmm. then that was when slavery began, that a person was made a slave for life. In most slave situations, person served seven years, eight years, and then could be free and become a part of the the system because they wanted diversity with those people who were enslaved. So this country created that kind of slavery in 16, Mm -hmm. I think it was 1649, not 1619 Mm -hmm. when we came here. And Mm -hmm. I don't know why they insist that we were slaves. The Portuguese person uh, handed us over to people for supplies, and like all the uh, sailors did when they brought uh, people into this country who couldn't pay their fare, the owner paid their fare, and they became servants for so many years, and then they became free. Okay. Mm. I'm sorry I'm taking so much time. No, no, this is really interesting. No, this is fine. Um, yeah, because I, um, I was at um, uh, Point Comfort, uh, the old Point Comfort, um, at uh, Fort Monroe in, in Hampton for the uh, the um, 400 years of African-American history um, commemorative um, event last year. Yeah. And, um, yeah, um, so, you know, standing on that, you know, on that ground, you know, where those Africans – you know, came yes. to the port. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. And then and sort I, of in keeping with what you oh, sorry. And sort of in keeping okay. with what you're saying about our being property, you know, that whole thing around contraband, I hadn't understood what that meant, you know, that people were contraband and that was because, you know, we were commodified. And so as contraband, then um not people, um, these Africans were able to get sanctuary at what's now Fort Monroe um, when they were leaving the plantations there in Hampton and its environment, you know, um, escaping after um, Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, um, Mm -hmm. you know, went into law. Yes. Well, I'm hopeful that, not too hopeful, but... I do have a little hope that the country will see that it is ill because there has been no reconciliation. And Mm -hmm. guilt and fear can cause psychological pain, and that psychological pain made people hit out without any reason not knowing why. And so we spend more money on weapons than we do on health, education, and welfare. We have more people in prison than any other uh, industrialized nation, and we have oh, so many things. Capital punishment, we still have capital punishment when so many mm-hmm. people have done that because of guilt and fear. 
you can mistreat a, a people and stand by and do nothing without feeling guilty. All children are taught moral values with that. If you do good, you're awarded. If you do bad, you're punished. And they learn moral values. And we haven't done that in this nation with uh, the terrible treatment of slavery. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was thinking um, about um, uh, Reverend Barber's, um, you know, Moral Mondays and, and the Poor People's Movement and yeah. the, you know, planned march um, um, in, you know, at the Capitol on June 20th this year. And yeah. uh, and then, you know, just the smaller meetings throughout community, you know, throughout the country, um, you know, people talking about, about you know, what's happening, you know, in their lives and how, you know, poverty is affecting their lives and what they see, you know, as a solution to that. Um, yeah, I was wondering if you have if you have any thoughts on, on the, um, you know, the poor people's uh, movement, the new poor people's movement, you know, continuation of Dr. King's, um, uh, you know, campaign. Yes. I, I have been impressed with um, the minister who is doing this. Um, Mm-hmm. You know, I can call it, think of a name and can't call it, but you just mentioned his name. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah. I feel that the way he is doing it is so important because he has a community which brings in all of the people, you see. They are mm-hmm. not just... African Americans doing this the way it, it was with um, um, the beginning of our movement, but he started out as the loving community. And that's mm-hmm. how I see his movement, and it is doing a lot of good to bring to the attention of people the need to end poverty. Yes. Go ahead. Oh, I was just thinking, um, you know, with this um, 
you know, the Poor People's Movement or Poor People's Campaign that um, that it's in keeping with this whole conversation um, that hasn't happened around the reconciliation and right. acknowledging, you know, sort of the impact of enslavement of African people on this nation and the legal way that African people are still not seen as 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 human beings, you know, full citizens with with the same rights as everyone else in this nation. That's true. And uh I am I as I said, at one time I was so hopeful because I could I had that hope that made me get out and do something. But mm-hmm. seeing what is happening today with the recurrence of the kind of bigotry and uh, talk about uh, African so-called S nations and uh, calling our young men who uh, demonstrate uh, sons of bitches and all of this reminds me again of what we had to go through I marched against people who said ovens too good for niggas. Mm-hmm. I marched when they said that and go back to the jungle, you monkeys. And I stood, uh, I walked with them and those signs. And I see this happening with these young people going into high schools with uh, Nazi equipment and our people being insulted again. So it 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 is amazing, and I do hope that a lot of people will go to that march in June because mm-hmm. poverty, uh, with not just African descendants, poverty is with a lot of people in this country. And at one time, they tried to get those people who are poor to work together, all people to work together to make a better nation. And now the separation is almost as bad as it was during the 60s. So let us be thankful for the minister who is trying to organize and get people to move again for justice and equality. Mm -hmm. I want to thank you for your work that you're doing. It's wonderful. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just looking at um, you know, these these wonderful photographs, you know, in your book Something Inside So Strong Life in Pursuit of Choice, Courage and Change. Um, yeah, pictures of you um uh, dancing in a Gambian village. Yeah. <laughs> looks like you're yes. having a good time. That was yeah. in the Gambia. Yes, mm-hmm. I did that African dance when I was 90. I don't think I could do it very well today. <laughs> I, I, I tell you, the drum is, when I hear drumming, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, 
the drums with our musicians remind me of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, Right. Notice I have a picture with my sons, Farouk. Did Mm -hmm. you know Farouk Walter, Uh, Lloyd Walter, at the uh, Aquarium Center? Hmm. I don't think so. Oh, uh uh-huh. He was very active there. It -hmm. might have been in Oakland by then. I mean, up north. uh, Northern. Mm -hmm. The gathering he'd had um, uh, where they came together to uh, emphasize black studies. He was very active at Cal State L.A. to uh, bring about Cal studies there. And, Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it was, yeah. But those were the times when young people were aware of their history. I'm not so sure now whether we are stressing that as much now with our young people as we were then. And, of course, mm-hmm. uh, I sometimes feel we failed in not bringing the northern uh, black youth into the movement as much as the southern black youth mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to know who they right. are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, it's not too late, particularly, you know, with books like this. You know, your book um, is a way for people to, um, you know, to get some of the backstory about, you know, things that um, are taken for granted, um, you know, the the reasons why, um, you know, we have certain rights and, and yeah. uh, you know, certain access is because of, you know, people who, who like yourself, you know, who... Um, who put your your safety and your lives online, and and some people who died to make you know these things happen, you know, make these laws change, you know, call this country uh, and its legislators, um, you know, into accountability because the laws might have been on book, but they weren't being enforced. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. and they there was, there was no need necessarily to. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. They were not the history of our people. Is not in the textbooks, and mm-hmm. the, I am talking to people my age now, here at where I am in this assistant living. They don't know the, that history, and oh, wow. they are amazed when I tell them things. Just amazed mm-hmm. that they didn't know about mm-hmm. this, uh, the history of this nation. So one person who read my book called me, and and he said, one word has stuck in my mind since I read this book. He said, the Mm -hmm. word is not in the book, but the word is instructive. The book Mm -hmm. is instructive. And I was pleased to hear that. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. Yeah. Was that your intention, um, you know, with the book? Not not really. My intention as um, when I 
was forced into writing, you know. Uh, I was a reluctant writer, hadn't gone into a library until I was in college, so I didn't mm. know people wrote books. <laughs> Oh. Um, we were denied entrance mm-hmm. into a library uh, mm-hmm. when I was growing up. And I knew that the purpose, now I knew the purpose was to, uh, to not have, have us uh, increase our imagination so that we could become creative and know who we are, you see. Mm-hmm. One has to have that ability to uh, meet and read a, 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 in a library. I only had the Bible, so <laughs> I thought only people who were inspired by God could write. I didn't know anybody could write. So mm-hmm. when uh, I was asked to write, for our children. I was a Mm -hmm. kindergarten teacher, and when I would read, try to find books for my children, who were all African Americans here in L.A., LA, uh, I would find books with our children eating watermelon and said, just give them time, and there'll be nothing but the rind. And they these children would be eating watermelon, and that's all they had. They didn't see themselves really as uh, I have shown them in my book that they are special. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to, that's why I became a writer, a writer of children's books so that our children could see themselves and become whole. And white children could read those books and see that difference is good. And it has worked. I get letters from all children, and many from white children, talking about my work. So, uh, no, I, uh, I am hopeful that uh, people will begin to want to know who we are and see that most of the things in this nation were shaped out of our culture, music, dance, uh, uh, the fashion, out of our culture, and uh, they didn't think we had a culture, but we did. We had our language, which tells us who we are, we couldn't use. They destroyed our language. They destroyed our religion, said we had no God, where we had a mother-father God, and uh, they... uh, did uh, our family structure. So that that makes up a culture, you know. That's what culture mm-hmm. is. Uh, language, religion, family structure, and mode of making a living. 
And they destroyed all of that for us. And yet, we, as I say, something inside so strong. (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was looking, uh, talking again off some of these wonderful pictures, um, you know, um, you know, pictures with your your mother and your siblings. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a beautiful portrait. Yeah, nice mm-hmm. looking family. Yeah. yeah. And you and your husband. Mhm. Mhm. Wanda, I wanted to share something yeah. because I know you are involved in the organ- organizing the Holocaust Memorial in the Bay Area, yeah. right? Still still doing that? Oh, yeah. Uh, yes, our 25th year this year. Mm-hmm. Oh, really? Whoa, congratulations, yeah. <laughs> girl. All right, I got to try you. to come up. When is it? Uh, October, um, let's see, let me get you the date. Don't have, uh, okay, October, I got it. I'll, I'll check yeah, in. Yeah, the day before. I wanted to share something uh, from her book. Uh, she was oh, in Ghana, because okay. it connects, you know, with the work you're doing. She was in Ghana, mm-hmm. and she was with the Ghanaian poet and theater producer, Kofi Awunor, Awunor. And mm-hmm. um, they went to the slave castle, Elmina Castle. Mm-hmm. And she okay. writes, Kofi and I left Elmina Castle and walked on the beautiful beach. On the shores of the Atlantic Ocean, under the guns that had protected the ships that carried my ancestors and approximately 11 million others through the doors of no return to liquid graves or into bondage, I broke down and cried. What is with you Americans? Kofi asked. You all do that when you come here. I stood looking up at the fortress and listening to the Atlantic roll in and out, and I thought, I can claim no country, no language, and no religion of Africa. And yet, I am denied full, equal citizenship and protection under the flag in my place of birth. Suddenly, it dawned on me, I am unique. I am of African heritage, born in America. I can claim the cultural wealth of both. I am not three-fifths of a person, as stated in the Constitution. I am not a potential. I am wholly what I am. My consciousness of being black does not manifest itself as a lack. It is real. It was as if a missing part of my life had at last been found. Mm. Oh, wow. 